The following is a production of the Truth Exchange podcast and is made possible through the financial contributions of listeners and friends like you. If you'd like more information about this series, The State of Our Disunion, or how you can financially partner with us today, please visit us at truthexchange.com. Well, it's great to join you today for this Truth Exchange conference, The State of Our Disunion. And uh, my subject for today is globalism and the emergent technocracy. Globalism and the emergent technocracy. We are broadcasting here from the Ezra Institute in Ontario, Canada on the Niagara Escarpment. And I'll be joining you shortly uh, for a live Q&A, which I'm looking forward to. So my subject for this lecture brings to highly visible expression a conflict that has and will continue throughout human history. And that is a conflict between the kingdom of God under Jesus Christ and the dream of man building his own universal kingdom as a monument to himself and his cultural historical work. Now, as Christians, we cannot evade and we cannot ignore this conflict. The Christian philosopher H. Evan Runner wrote that prior to the consummation of the kingdom of God, I quote, the battle, which is for nothing less than the entire creation and our whole lives, rages on from day to day. It is becoming more intense, more radical, and more sophisticated. It falls to us Christians to wage it continuously and resolutely harmless as doves, but as wise or prudent as serpents. The Apostle Paul urged Timothy to pay careful attention to his instruction and to the prophetic word in order that, and I quote again, they may give you confidence to fight well in the Lord's battles. That's 1 Timothy 1.18. So we're in the Lord's battle And the battle lines today are increasingly being drawn between two competing views of the future of human society. On the one hand, we have the culturally pervasive and sophisticated expression of man's autonomous idea of imperial unity, manifest today in the concept of globalism as the only rational course for humankind. And on this view, there is a egalitarian democratization of the entire globe, and that's seen as necessary for the unity of humanity to be reached. And on the other hand, we have the biblical view of the kingdom of God in Christ pervading all the various nations of the world where the rule of God is manifest within a great diversity of cultural and national contexts. So that is the fundamental dividing line, the fundamental battle of our time. So as we talk about globalism, let's begin by defining our terms. When we approach it, uh, the clarification of terms is important because globalism and globalization are not identical concepts and they shouldn't be confused. So let's first talk about globalization just very briefly. Globalization is actually a descriptive term 
referring to a set of processes involving increased worldwide interconnectedness. With economic and technological innovations, there's an acceleration and deepening of interaction, communication, trade, and transportation across traditional boundaries. That's come about especially in the last 50 years, and it's involved new arrangements among nations. The increased velocity of exchange in data, in capital and goods, has meant that the last 50 years has presented new possibilities. The reality of uh, modern life presents some very exciting opportunities for the gospel, for Christian cultural development and renewal. So this kind of internationalization, facilitating greater interaction between nations, is surely a positive thing. Now, although it presents new opportunities, it also brings with it new problems and challenges that we have to wrestle with biblically and ethically. On the positive side, internationalization has helped lift millions out of poverty through market liberalization. The spread of literacy and formal education to enable engagement with world markets has improved opportunities for men and women around the globe. Global tourism has become a major industry, providing millions of jobs in developing economies. Gains in productivity have led to access to energy and products at lower cost, helping millions more to climb out of poverty. And then you can add compassionate relief efforts by various nations in the wake of natural disasters, the spread of Western medicine and foreign investment. These are all byproducts of globalization, bringing with them many benefits. Some of the challenges and dangers of globalization are equally obvious in a fallen world, of course. With greater interactions, <clears throat> nations bring the best and the worst of their cultures and society to other nations. Big tech billionaires and multinational companies can quickly become bullies with too much power. And an unsanctified drive for profit at all costs can lead to pollution and environmental damage and the crushing of small businesses. Local farmers in some contexts can struggle to compete Media available globally can be used for nefarious purposes to manipulate people. And criminal and terrorist activities are also globalized, including illegal arms, sex trafficking, drugs trafficking, and smuggling. Powerful special interest groups clamor to impose their ideas on other nations through transnational associations, organizations, and international treaties. And all of those things have to be wrestled with in terms of a scriptural world and life view. So that's globalization. And there are positives and negatives to be dealt with there. What we want to talk about, though, in this lecture is globalism. Globalism. By contrast, globalism is an ideology. You recognize that by the ism. It sees the technological developments and change I've just described not simply as enhancing international relations, but heralding a new era that will certainly lead to the decline and eventual disappearance of separate states. 
it puts religious hope in the promise of a democratized, technocratic world beyond war and poverty with universal rights emerging from a secular and pagan worldview. The ultimate goal of globalism is the subsuming of cultures, states and economies within one global international law order, including a supranational government, with each of us living as world citizens. This is a borderless world. As such, globalism is essentially utopian in character and believes its vision is an historical necessity. Globalism is, in other words, inevitable and we cannot turn back. That's the basic idea. So let's talk now about the genetics of globalism. Let's think about where it came from and how it's developed into its current form. Uh, to understand today's globalism, it uh, often going under uh, euphemisms like transnationalism, new world order, global governance, being on the right side of history and so on, it's important to understand the origins of this vision uh, for human society. In the West, I mentioned that two visions of the world, two visions of the world's political life, have battled against each other for centuries. One posits independent sovereign nation states pursuing political life in terms of their own customs, uh, religion and traditions. The other sees the world united under a single political law order maintained by a supranational authority. Now, the first view, uh, which we will call biblical nationalism, can be traced back to the Older Testament and the establishment of the nation of Israel. Think about it, when God first calls Abraham and tells him that he is going to make a great nation of him and bless all the families of the earth through this new people, no empire over the earth is offered to Abraham. You see that in Genesis 12. Such a thing is never offered to Israel's patriarchs, kings, or rulers. Now, we'll return to that and the reason for that uh, in the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ as the root of a redeemed humanity a bit later. But it's noteworthy at the outset that Scripture itself offers an alternate picture to the pagan vision that has dominated world history. God's idea was of an independent nation without imperial ambitions. That is, a number of tribes gathered together in a given limited territory with a common religion, language, and unique constitution. Now, because of the Christian gospel and the presence of the Bible uh, at the heart of Western civilization for a number of centuries, a constant struggle has gone on between the pagan globalist dream and the scriptural vision of independent nations which look back to the constitution of Israel. So, for example, with the Reformation and a return to scripture, nation states like England and the Netherlands broke with the authority of the Holy Roman Empire 
leading to four centuries of Protestant nation-building in Western Europe and America. In these lands, national sovereignty and self-determination were regarded as foundational principles basic to true social and political freedom. So that's the first vision of what we've called um, biblical nationalism or biblical nationhood. The second vision is utopian imperialism, which we can call globalism. And this is going to be our focus until we come to, at the end, a scriptural response. So this view uh, originates with the Tower of Babel and the numerous pagan imperial powers which followed. And for that, you can go to Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, and Genesis 11, verse 1 through 9. There were a succession of imperial powers seeking uh, empire. Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greece, and of course, the Roman Empire. And then there was later an attempted synthesis of the pagan view of empire with Christianity in the West under the Holy Roman Empire. There were, of course, other essentially pre-modern attempts at world empire, and they were made under they were made by the Mongol Empire, founded by Genghis Khan, and the Islamic Ottoman Empire, which only ended with World War I. Now, the European colonial powers of the modern era had a religiously distinctive character to the notions of world empire originating in the pre-modern world, especially the British Commonwealth of independent nations that emerged from the British Empire. However, the British Empire, even the British Empire, was infected with elements of the same virus of utopian imperialism just as the United States, after World War II, particularly at the end of the Cold War, increasingly began to pursue a global regime of law to be imposed on all nations, if necessary, by military might. So as Britain and America began secularizing and drifting from scriptural foundations, the faulty assumption was made that inherited ideas such as constitutional democracy, republicanism, the rule of law, individual liberty, and so on, should be immediately understood and desired by everyone, which obviously failed to take seriously that such ideas and practices are the cultural inheritance of certain tribes and nations emerging from specific religious assumptions over many centuries. So we began with the Tower of Babel and the idolatrous assumption there, the, the idolatrous idea of a universal uh, global uh, order under, under the uh, supervision of man in some kind of a world state through the various empires on into the uh, Holy Roman Empire, the synthesis between paganism and Christianity to the Protestant construction of nation states and now to the... Um, where we are today uh, with the re-emergence of this in the form of globalism. So today, Western empire building has re-emerged with the liberal imperialist notion 
of globalism. The proponents of this view share a clearly defined imperialist perspective in which the secular liberal vision of society, enshrined in, it, in its radical, equalitarian and egalitarian principles for planetary salvation, roughly corresponding to the liberty, uh, quality and fraternity of the French Revolution, are codified as universal law and imposed upon the nations by transnational institutions, treaties and bodies, if necessary, by force. This globalism comes with its own doctrine of authority, infallibility, uh, rooted in a, the idea of natural law emerging from man's collective reason. This is a concept that goes all the way back to the ancient Stoics. So this, this, um, this transformation from the Protestant idea of nation-states began with the Enlightenment era as cultural elites began turning away from Christianity and the Protestant nation-state and started formulating their globalist manifestos, emulate, emulating the ancient Greeks. For, for Plato and Aristotle, all sociological questions concerned the theory of the polis, an all-encompassing religious, political community which envisioned no areas of life outside of the state's control. Now, in Immanuel Kant's Perpetual Peace, a philosophical sketch in 1795, he attacks the idea of the national state as a form of barbarism, and in the name of reason, called for an international state over all the earth under a universal law. And this is what he writes, and I quote, There is only one rational way in which states coexisting with other states can emerge from the lawless condition of pure warfare. They must renounce their savage and lawless freedom, adapt themselves to public coercive laws, and thus form an international state which would necessarily grow until it embraced all the people of the earth, end quote. So this for Kant was a dictate of reason. And to oppose it was resistance to the journey of humankind toward the universal reign of reason. Kant's basic premise is that a crooked human nature could be renovated and improved through government institutions, various governmental institutions, and international law. The ultimate goal is achieving reasonableness in the individual and finally in a world state. And this basic idea became incredibly popular with the intellectual class in Western culture and it began to take on a variety of different forms. A pagan spiritual form of it, stemming from another German philosopher, Hegel, sees the movement toward globalism as the unfolding of spirit, a kind of pantheistic God concept in history. The world historical individual, that is the leading society, moves the world toward the nebulous idea of absolute spirit. And the omega point is not the consummation of Christ's kingdom, who is both alpha and omega, but human civilization's reunification with God, that is, with 
world spirit. On this view, globalism is a dialectical phase of the embodiment of God's will unfolding on earth. So this post-enlightenment doctrine is both imperious and totalitarian. Much of the religious language is now dropped, although uh, of late we're seeing it reintroduced through pagan spirituality into uh, all the talk of globalization, especially with the green movement and so on. Uh, but with some of that language dropped, globalism is manifest as liberal imperialism, which seeks to shame and hunt down opposition, censoring the older Christian views and stigmatizing opinion and policy that might be resistant to the liberal imperial agenda. It demands conformity everywhere and in every respect, including our speech and our thought. The Jewish philosopher Yoram Hazoni has pointed out that, and I quote, under a universal political order, tolerance for diverse political and religious standpoints must necessarily decline. Western elites whose views are now being aggressively homogenized in conformity with the new liberal construction are finding it increasingly difficult to recognize a need for the kind of toleration of divergent standpoints that the principle of national self-determination had once rendered axiomatic. Tolerance, like nationalism, is becoming a relic of a bygone era. The emerging liberal construction is incapable of respecting, much less celebrating, the deviation of nations seeking to assert a right to their own unique laws, traditions and policies. Any such dissent is held to be vulgar and ignorant, if not evidence of a fascistic mindset. Campaigns of delegitimization in both Europe and America have been directed against the practice of Christianity and Judaism, religions on which the old biblical political order is based. It requires no special insight to see that this is only the beginning and that the teaching and practice of traditional forms of Judaism and Christianity will become ever more untenable as the liberal construction advances. Genuine diversity in the constitutional or religious character of the Western nations persists only at mounting cost to those who insist on their freedom." End quote. So the liberal imperialists are cosmopolitans who, bursting with love for all mankind, see themselves as world citizens with a primary ethical obligation to an abstract idea of universal humanity rather than to their family, their people, culture, and national identity. First, they seek to impose their own progressive view of reality on everyone in their own nation, then they seek to imperiously export those values everywhere in an effort to homogenize the entire world, making everywhere subject to their vision of social order with a variety of economic and militaristic and diplomatic threats. For the globalist, of course, this is logical. 
There are rational, that is secular liberal, universal principles that must be embodied everywhere for the well-being of all the earth. But any principles, practices, or institutions that cannot be embraced universally, i.e. biblical truth and biblical institutions, must be transcended. Traditional religion is divisive, not rational, and so cannot be universalized and provide a basis for a global society. So you have this constant drive towards homogeneity. Now, the latest development in this concept of, of globalism is globalist technocracy. Globalist technocracy. And this is uh, an essentially a new element that's developed in, the, in recent decades as technological development has advanced. So let's talk a little bit now about that development of globalist technocracy that's now inherent with the idea of globalism. This is the latest element in the utopian dreams of globalists. It has this technological emphasis whereby progress towards a socialistic global order is both scientific and technologically inevitable. It's seen as scientific and technologically inevitable. This is a development, of course, from the earlier idea of man's reason as the lawgiver for all of reality. By reason, man takes the world apart by reducing it to its most basic or supposedly its most basic material components and reassembles it or remakes it in terms of his own idea within the historical process. So the whole of reality on this view becomes uh, the stuff of man's creative force. All of reality is to be viewed as the stuff of our creative force. Globalism has developed this distinctly Marxist and technocratic character in recent years with the pretense of being able to predict the future in a scientific way. Uh, it's important to understand that in Marxism, technology is at the hub of thought. With a global community potentially owning the production forces, which is human beings and the means of production, societal alienation can be theoretically eliminated by changing production relations, which was the essence of the Marxist idea. You have to change production relations. Central to this change is technology. The potential of cybernetics, which is self-regulating systems or machines, means the liber liberation of human beings from slavery to nature in order to live creative lives and be completely themselves. So armed man can save himself from servitude. So Protestant capitalist production relations, i.e. private property, sale and purchase, the biblical family structure and hierarchy, the life of the church, employers and employees, workers and owners, these are a form of slavery and a hindrance to this progress and therefore they must be transcended and abolished. As uh, human technology advances, 
history supposedly progresses in freedom as this alienation is done away to the point where self-regulating, increasingly self-regulating machines liberate workers to simply be uh, creative and to live lives of leisure and realize total freedom. The history, uh, the progress of history is constantly expanding. So the kingdom of freedom uh, doing away with alien alienation that this view supposes is not freedom as Christianity understands it. The progress of history is constantly expanding in range. In fact, it's a constantly expanding range of controlled and regulated acts, controlled and regulated acts, with society itself being conceived essentially as a self-regulating system, almost like a cybernetic system. The human being as a societal person is part of a collective, is thought to be the highest product of matter. Caught up in necessary historical processes where one surrenders individual being. And this is why it's only a socialist order, and ultimately a global one, that can realize this true freedom of necessity. People expanding this, so this idea of freedom is this expansion of freedom, of progress in history, which is controlled and regulated, a self-regulating system where people are part of a collective. At root, Marxist thought reduces man to homo faber, that is a creator with tools, which is to say man is reduced to technology and society to technocracy. If you reduce man to his technology, to his, uh, his work, his, as a creator with tools, society is fundamentally a technocracy. Human existence is understood and accounted for entirely in terms of its artificiality, that is, human self-generation as production or procreation force. Here's what Edward Sherman uh, says in his book on technology, summarizing the Marxist view. He says, and I quote, in Marxism, humanity as a species liberates itself in and through technology from all oppression and bondage, whether natural or societal. The unadulterated, technological, active, historical society thereby becomes the authentic being of mankind. From the preceding, it is apparent that for the Marxist, technology becomes a religion. Such a person believes that technological development brings progress that will issue in a kingdom of freedom. The reverse side of this kingdom of freedom is the elimination of the individual. Therefore, the freedom attained can never be anything more than societal freedom, end quote. So this Dagon of Marxist technocracy has come into sharp focus in recent months. To give you a concrete illustration of it, because I know that stuff is quite philosophical, it's quite abstract. But in recent months, this has come into sharp focus with various globalist and transnational organizations promoting their vision for the emergence of a technocratic global order and fourth industrial revolution in the wake of the COVID-19 uh, crisis. Klaus Schwab, who I like to call Dr. No, the founder of one such globalist organization, 
the highly influential World Economic Forum, published a book in 2020 called COVID-19, The Great Reset. Using the novel virus as a pretext for increased global controls on every aspect of life, he bemoans the failure of global governance and leadership in allowing social divides and an absence of cooperation. The time is now, he claims, for a new world order to emerge, the contours of which we can imagine and draw naturally for ourselves. Things will never go back to normal, he claims, because the globalists have a new normal in mind for us. And I quote, many of our beliefs and assumptions about what the world could or should look like will be shattered in the process, end quote. So using familiar euphemisms for global technocracy, Schwab celebrates the massive consolidation of power in government and its intervention in every department of life throughout his book, all in the name of pursuing global public goods such as health and climate change solutions. The global contours that he sees emerging from the crisis are transparently Marxist ambitions that skew reality and misrepresent the Protestant heritage of the West, in particular the United Kingdom and the United States. And I quote to you now from his book again. The post-pandemic era will usher in a period of massive wealth redistribution from the rich to the poor and from capital to labor, or so he claims. Second, COVID-19 is likely to sound the death knell of neoliberalism a corpus of ideas and policies that can loosely be defined as favoring competition over solidarity, creative destruction over government intervention, and economic growth over social welfare. These two concomitant forces, massive redistribution on the one hand and abandoning neoliberal policies on the other, will exert a defining impact on society's organization, ranging from how inequalities could spur social unrest to the increasing role of governments and the redefinition of social contracts, end quote. So the key to the new world is technocracy, not just the utilization of new technologies, but mankind embracing the ideas of new elite, a new elite group of planners. Will we get our global house in order is the great question for Schwab, which is the essence of his great reset, getting the global house in order. The obstacle, of course, to this is nationalism, which Schwab bemoans as a world in which nobody is really in charge. And I quote, global governance and international cooperation are so intertwined that it is nigh on impossible for global governance to flourish in a divided world, end quote. There is no progress possible for Schwab without shared intentionality manifest in all people striving together toward a common goal. What is that common goal? Well, they are goals established by neo-Marxist technocrats to address the perceived existential threats to what he calls Mother Nature. And those threats are fourfold for Schwab. One, nuclear threats. 
two, climate change, three, unsustainable resource use, and four, inequalities between peoples. So planetary salvation depends on globalism. Globalism. Well, let's conclude with a discussion then of the scriptural response. We've seen what globalization uh, is in distinction from globalism. Uh, we've talked about the two fundamental and primary visions of uh, the future of human society, uh, one of nationhood, nation states, and one of some sort of transnational global political order. And we've highlighted the uh, latest development in globalism in terms of this idea of a global technocracy, of a world supervised and run by global elites pursuing uh, broad international political powers. So let's consider now how we can respond to this scripturally. The late 19th and early 20th century philosopher of history, Oswald Spengler, actually embodies the radical humanistic mentality of the globalist when he claims that technology will place in human hands a world created by itself and obedient to itself. The diabolic seed of his thought is unmistakable, and I quote, a will to power which mocks all bounds of time and space and makes the infinite and eternal its goal, subjects whole parts of the world to itself, finally embraces the whole globe with its communication and information technology and transforms it through the power of its practical energy and the awesomeness of its technological methods." End quote. Now it's not difficult to see there how such perverted ambition embracing not only the globe itself but defying all time and space will lead to tyranny and dictatorship, not freedom and human flourishing. That globalist vision distorts the cultural mandate with human arrogance, hubris, and rebellion. From a scriptural standpoint, the root of such ambitions is located, as we saw at the beginning, in the spirit of Babel, where humanity, in pretended autonomy, opposes the creator and his law order for creation. The false religion of Babel, idealizing one unified humanity under a humanistic power state operating in defiance of God to make all things subject to man's power and glory, is utopian. In our time, it ends up placing power and control in the hands of elites, banking cartels, multinational corporations, and transnational powers and agencies. As such, Biblical resistance to globalism is a matter of preserving actual freedom for real national communities around the world. It's not simply a theoretical philosophical exercise. Now, at the beginning of the lecture, I noted that God did not give to the patriarchs, to Moses or the kings of Israel, a universal political mandate or imperial sanction to build empire. Now, it's true, of course, that God's word is given to all people. The prophets were to speak God's law for the instruction of the nations. We see that in Isaiah 42. And the seed of Abraham would be for the blessing of all peoples. 
However, the nation of Israel itself was limited to prescribed borders and had no authority to impose by force its way of life on the nations around them. It was to be a model, a light, an example, a prophetic voice, but not an imperial power. Clearly, there was a missiological purpose for Israel as a nation-state. Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8 makes that clear. As there is in God's providential ordination of the boundaries of the various nations of the world. The Apostle Paul made this missiological purpose clear to the pagan imperialist thinkers in Athens. In Acts 17, 26 through 27, he says... From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. This biblical view stands in stark contrast to the view of the pagan nations of antiquity and that of their modern globalist heirs. Again, Yoram Hazoni points out, this mosaic view, and I quote, this mosaic view is diametrically opposed to that offered by Kant's supposed enlightened imperialism, which asserts that moral maturity arrives with the renunciation of national independence and the embrace of a single universal empire. But there is no moral maturity in the yearning for a benevolent empire to rule the earth and take care of us, judging for us and enforcing its judgment upon us. It is in fact nothing but a plea to return to the dependency of childhood. True moral maturity is attained only when we stand on our own feet, learning to govern ourselves and defend ourselves without needlessly harming those around us, and where possible also extending assistance to neighbours and friends. And the same is true for nations, which reach genuine moral maturity when they can live in freedom and determine their own course, benefiting others where this is feasible, yet with no aspiration to impose their rule and their laws on other nations by force. We should shoulder the burden of national freedom and independence that we have received as an inheritance from our forefathers. End quote. So the genuinely Christian alternative to globalism is a scriptural form of nationhood that recognizes the true basis of unity in the human community, in Christ and under his word, not in man-imposed global political unification. Now, the other typical responses offered by Christians to globalism are simply inadequate to resist the march of liberal imperialism. The neo-Catholic approach that has been frequently adopted by many evangelicals and two kingdoms advocates in the reformed camp seeks to embrace a natural law theory of universal reason indebted to the Stoics and Enlightenment philosophers rather than scripture in maintaining some sort of moral, moral minimum for the functioning of the state. This ancient Greek idea of an eternal law of reason in which the mind of both God and man participates, thereby making natural law publicly accessible in a way that biblical revelation supposedly is not, 
is inevitably susceptible and sympathetic to ideas of universal human rights deduced from human reason, along with their enforcement by some form of international regime. While such Christians frequently oppose things like abortion and they will support uh, traditional ideas of marriage, they lack a clear basis on which to resist the growth of the state in controlling all areas of life and the globalist drive of modern progressivism. And then likewise, there are contractarians among Christians who see the basic cohesion in society as built around loyalty to the state rather than religious commitment to Christ. And they tend to view the state as a neutral apparatus charged only with a vague notion of the common good as defined by the social contract. It only seems logical that such a contract could and perhaps should span the nations of Europe, the European Union, and eventually some sort of global order. Such Christians, like their secular and atheistic counterparts, wish to distance the state from any fundamental obligation to scriptural standards or moral religious traditions, and in so doing offer passive support to both statism and globalism without necessarily championing it. The truly Christian alternative to globalism with its scripturally informed idea of nationhood under God is well summarized by Hazoni as a standpoint that seeks to defend an international order of nation states based on two principles of Protestant or Calvinistic construction. And I quote, national independence and the biblical moral minimum for legitimate government. National independence and the biblical moral minimum for legitimate government. This he describes as, and I quote, the freest and in many respects, the most successful international order that has ever existed. And he identifies the biblical heritage of the Anglo-American conservative tradition inherited from people like Edmund Burke as, and I quote, a nationalist political tradition that embraces the principles of limited executive power, individual liberties, public religion based on the Bible, and a historical empiricism that has so often served to moderate political life in Britain and America in comparison with that of other countries. So there is an obvious clear distinction and a very distinct idea there of the Christian conception, the biblical conception of the organization of human society in opposition to globalism. Since the biblical idea of a nation state under God with public religion based on scripture is not worked out in detail in the Bible into a systematic political philosophy, a Protestant or Calvinist construction was helpfully fleshed out by the Christian philosopher Hermann Doeverd in terms of a worldview applicable to modern human society under four basic beliefs. Those are, one, all, inst all social institutions, whether past or present, find their ultimate origin in creation. In creation, all things were separated after their own kind and vested with the right to exist and develop. Second, God is the absolute sovereign over all creation, at its inception and in its unfolding, his sovereignty is absolute and constant. 
No creature and no activity is ever exempt from his authority. Third, God's authority is a legal authority. He established creation and governs his creatures by law. The laws of creation communicate the will of the creator. They provide order and constancy, not chaos and indeterminacy. And because God's sovereignty is absolute and constant, his law is comprehensive and continually obligates all creatures in all their activities. And fourth, under the laws of creation, each social institution has a legal right to exist alongside other individuals and institutions. It also has a legal duty to function in accordance with God's creation ordinances and providential plan to fulfill its task or calling in history. Earthly sovereignty is subservient to the absolute sovereignty of God. So those four issues, the institutions, all social institutions finding their origin in creation, the absolute sovereignty of God over creation, God's authority as a legal authority, and under the laws of creation, each institution having the right to exist. Now, this implies that just as the family and the church and the state enjoy a God-given legal right to exist and function in their own sovereign spheres under God, guaranteeing their freedom, so also each nation has a right to exist under the sovereignty of God and be free to serve him. Since God's creation word and his inscripturated word don't contradict each other, the purposes of God in establishing the nations and their boundaries as taught in the Bible and seen in God's creation norms for human society are all for the advancement of his kingdom. Now, this might sound controversial because this also implies that the nations are ultimately obligated by God to be Christian. The nations are obligated by God to be Christian. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, Philippians 2, and many other texts make this clear. No one nation, though, has the authority to impose God's law word upon another nation. For the king of kings himself, in whom is vested all authority in heaven and on earth, is building his kingdom in all the nations through the gospel witness of his people in all of life. It is vital to recognize, however, that because the nation state is subject to God's norms for faith, it is impossible for any state, any more than it's possible for any family, to be religiously neutral. Jonathan Chaplin explains Doiverd's reformational approach to furthering a free Christian society within constitutional democracies that manifest a Christian stamp. And this is what he says, and I quote, Many states may be led by a false faith. Many states may be led by false faiths. But it is possible for a state to be led by a genuinely Christian faith, yet without subscribing to any particular ecclesiastical confession. Rather, a state functions Christianly in the aspect of faith by acknowledging divine revelation within its internal political structure. It is in a political not an ecclesiastical confession of faith, that the state can function as a Christian state. 
me say that again, it is in a political, not an ecclesiastical confession of faith that the state can function as a Christian state. Well, how would this be, would be, how would this be expressed? It would be expressed in public manifestations like a religious national anthem, such as Canada has, has in the United, and the, uh, well, to a lesser degree, the United States. It's more about the flag, but you can't have everything, can you? Canada and, and Britain, anyway. Uh, parliamentary prayers or prayers in Congress or in the Senate. Recognizing formally the authority of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Constitution. Again, that's formally admitted even in the preamble to the Canadian Charter. And of course, the shaping of public law and policy in terms of a biblical vision whilst maintaining respect for the sphere sovereignty of all the other structures of society. This helps, of course, to limit the state's task. Now, this would include, therefore, respecting the legitimate authority of other nations to exist, to establish their own laws and follow their own customs and traditions without being coerced by more powerful nations or globalist bodies to bow before an international regime of international laws or some supranational political governance. The rejection of globalism, however, does not condemn humanity to perpetual conflict, war, and disharmony, which is the great fear. Globalism as ideology reflects a deep religious hunger and urge toward the unity and peace of the human race. And to that extent, it is understandable. The problem is that it seeks to accomplish this in an idolatrous way, distorting the cultural mandate. The biblical vision is that all the nations by the work and witness of the gospel, will find true unity despite their real diversity in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. When humanity acts in terms of its own pretended autonomy and authority to build a global empire, it robs human society of the liberating reality of true freedom, harmony and peace that alone can be realized in and through the gospel of the kingdom. As Herman Doiverd wrote, and I quote, the Christian religion linked to the Old Testament revelation provides a new religious ground motive for reflection on the foundations of human society. It is the theme of creation, fall into sin, and redemption by Christ Jesus in the consummation of the Holy Spirit. It reveals that the religious community of the human race is rooted in creation, in the solidarity of the fall into sin, and in the spiritual kingdom of God through Christ Jesus, the Corpus Christi. In this belief, Christianity destroys, in principle, any claim made by a temporal community to encompass all of human life in a totalitarian sense." End quote. The key then to a sure future is committing our thought, our lives, our nations to the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, which has come and will come. For all the world is subject to that future. This is an eschatological 
future reality that's progressively manifest in history and reaches its consummation at the return of Christ. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2.14. There in the New Jerusalem, the final state affirms a rich cultural diversity of language, ethnicity, and national integrity, because the word of God has been applied and contextualized amongst every people of the earth. As the scripture says in Revelation 9, in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Universal empire belongs to our high priest and king, Jesus Christ alone.